Welcome to Indie Reads Aloud, a storytelling podcast with your host, Diana Catherine Plopa. Come gather round, grab a snack, and listen to a story. Each week, we'll feature a new indie author with a story to tell. There are no long-winded interviews, no sales pitches, just stories. Most of the stories we'll tell will be family-friendly, but if they're not, you'll get fair warning before the reading begins. If you want to hear more, investigate the story notes for links to the author and where to buy their books. You can find us at dkpwriter.com. And now, sit back, relax, and listen to a story. Welcome, everyone. This is episode four of our wonderful new experiment with J.M. Samlin. We are reading portions of his series, a trilogy in three parts, am I dead? This <laughs> is episode four, and we're reading a little bit each time, and we're going to release them in order so you folks can listen to them one right after the other. For those of you who are out in listener land, uh, this particular episode has a listen advisory for some strong imagery. So if you have little people nearby, you might want to preview this episode before you share it with them. Jamie, welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me again. This is wonderful. Ouch. As I said, you can come back as often as you like. Just as long as you keep telling me stories, you can come back. All right. <laughs> So um, this is the necromancer of Urbis. Is it yes. Urbis or Ubus? Urbis. Urbis. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking in the green room about how this is the fourth book in this series, but it's really kind of 2.5. Mm-hmm. Can you so, explain that a little bit for us? Yes. So book two, Trials of Thraktar, the um, the antagonist in their Kozlant. Um, he's been an issue through the whole trilogy, but he is is pivotal in the second book. So just when I was coming off of writing Trials, um, I found that NaNoWriMo existed, the challenge to write a 50,000-word manuscript in a month. So I thought, oh, I wonder if I could write his backstory. So I did. And that came, I generated Necromancer Urbis out of that. So my goal was, well, this will be a prequel book because it takes place in um, 25 years before, part, yeah, it takes place 25 years before Realms of Tursewood. And so I thought, well, it's a prequel book, but then it does require a lot of information that you get from uh, from the other books, you know, how the magic system works and characters and, and events that have happened. Uh, so it's it's not really a prequel. It's it's book 2.5 or book four of the trilogy. Um however you'd like to see it. I just, I wouldn't recommend reading it first. <laughs> I I just think it's fun to say book four of a trilogy. I, yeah. A, a trilogy I of four parts. That's fun. Um, mm-hmm. Who was it that did that? Isaac Asimov did that with the foundation series. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It was, it was a, a trilogy and then he added and, and a book five or book four. Okay. So yeah. Why not? It's the great thing about what we do for a living is is we don't have particular rules to follow. We get to make our own as we go. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So um, in the last story, we just witnessed a great battle. 
Yes. Um, after you've written a scene that's intensive like that, how mm-hmm. do you downshift into the next part of your writing journey? Because writing, I don't do well battle scenes because I'm just not good at all that killing and maiming and mutilating and I'm just not good at it. <laughs> um, but I can imagine that it might be a little overstimulating sometimes to be that mm-hmm. involved in, in writing scenes like that. So what do you do as an author to shift and maybe go and write, I don't know, shiny after something like that? Right. If you uh, work on, on a different project, uh, my brain is pretty good at resetting every day though. So if I'm working on a working on some really intense scene, whether it's it's action or it's emotion, um, working on that really intense scene, then if I put it down, either my brain will keep running on it and I need to finish it. Um, but once it's finished, I'm done with it. So one of the things I've definitely tried to do more as I um, continue to gain experience as a writer is uh, I try to not reread my work too much while I'm writing it. You know, I write the scene and then I'm done. And I don't reread it until I come back into an editing phase. So as long as I don't keep rereading it, I don't keep reliving all of that, that heightened, um, you know, uh, uh, adrenaline moments. And so I can, I can just take it, give it a little bit of a rest and then move on to something else. So you can essentially drop the egg on the pavement, walk away while it sizzles and come back later after it's cooked. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that image just shot into my head, but it did. I like it. Hmm. So tell us a little bit about this. You already said it's a backstory for mm-hmm. one of your characters. Um, tell us a little bit about where this came from and then set the scene and read it for us. All right. Yeah. So uh, so this whole story takes uh, is starring Kozlant, who is the, he's the self-proclaimed first Archmage. He's, uh, everything that he does is always just for the betterment of his people. Uh, very, very full of himself. Uh, we also see that he doesn't really, he's not much of a people person, but at the very beginning of this novel, so this takes place 25, um, or I guess it'd be a little bit, no, 20, 28-ish years before Realms of Tursput. So in the very first chapter, we see him, um, in the eternal library, the stacks which is important for the rest of the books. But just imagine he's in an extremely large library and he's talking to himself. And then we finally see that he's talking with a one-year-old infant Lone, who was in uh, my reading for the for Realms of Tursewood. So we that gives us the time of when this would take place and just that he's able to talk with his infant great-grandson and like express that he, he loves this child. We see something of the character that we don't really see otherwise. Um, He's usually pretty nasty in how he just wants to get things done. So one of the things that he wants to do is 750 years ago, he's he's a very long-lived fella. Um, he, um, just by a number of mistakes that he made himself, he ended up having to kill his a, a dear friend of his just to stop him from his madness. So now he wants to make that no longer be the case and un, you know find a way to resurrect his friend. So he does some research, and um, so to set the scene here, uh, Kozlant is searching for the fabled necromancer of this realm, and guided by Ronmi the Blackwish and his flying cat, Foster, they arrive at Madame Centra's huts, but um, but all the knowledge that she has comes with a price. 
Kozla and Romney are standing outside her hut and is raised in the uh, her, her hut raised in the swamp and she approaches. So imagine a hut on stilts and the hut is full of lots of mosquitoes and bugs. Very gross. Okay, Necromancer of Earths. Kozlan saw flashes of a mossy cloak covered, covering an unnatural slender form as a lantern swung. A tall white crown sat on the figure's head, and one ghastly hand held the lantern's chain, while the other clutched the cloak t- closed tight, revealing nothing of the creature beneath. The cape spread across the water surface, and the lack of splashing gave Kozlan the impression the being walked across the water surface. Is that the swamp hag? he asked. Romney slowed, nodded slowly, his eyes wide. Madam Centra, Kozlan said across the water, I am Kozlan, the first archmage. I come seeking your knowledge. She made no sign of acknowledgement, and she continued her slow, pla- her slow pace towards the raised hut. Can she hear me? I'm sure everyone in the swamps can hear you, Romney hissed. The scent of recent death, the same as the Vale Walkers, overwhelmed the lemon and mint of Kozlan's enchantment as the swamp hag grew nearer. When she paused at the base of her small tower, Kozlan saw clearly that her crown was crafted of sharpened bones, probably forearms. She rose, her moss cloak growing to never leave contact with the water until she floated level with the men. Her exposed arm holding the lantern, her hand grasping at her cloak, looked to be covered with flesh of one long dead in the water, bloated and blanched with patches ripped away. Kozlan held back his disgust, while Romney stepped away, furiously rubbing his thumb across his forehead. Adam Centra, Kozlan tried again. I said I come seeking your knowledge. I have been told you are a font of it in this realm. The cloaked hag slowly tilted her head, as if considering the archmage. A slender tendril peeked from her hood, barbed and dripping with mucus, with ropes of mucus. It slid towards Kozlan, stopping only inches from his face. His protective aegis shimmered blue as it repelled the tongue. It slowly receded into the cloak as Madame Centra raised higher to hook her lantern on the edge of the porch's roof. My knowledge does not come without a cost, she asked. She said in a voice like the chime of delicate bells. Kozlan paused, not expecting that tone from a creature so ghastly. Blood, I am aware. You should know my blood, being an archmage, is far more valuable than any other, save for perhaps the blood of your Rossel burial. The swamp hag's cape moved to the porch and drew up from the water. Step into my home. Your familiars are welcome as well. She flowed between Kozlan and Romney and through the dark door of her hobble. Familiar? Kozlan asked. She thinks you are my pet. Uh, can I stay out here? Kazan shrugged and waited for the hag's moss trail to, fl- to follow her through the door before going in himself. Madame Centra hovered over the cooking pit, looming over Kozlan with a crown of bones almost scraping the ceiling of the hut. The small light in the archmage's palm gave the hag a ghastly upward illumination, the barbed tongue again snaking from her robes to taste the air around the archmage. You are unique, little one. Your enchantments are powerful, but I can almost I can smell almost no fear in you, little one, Kazan Scott. Few things strike fear in me, hag. Oh, so brazen to use that word. Her grip lessened and her cloak opened just a little, giving Kazlan a glimpse of the pale body of rotted flesh beneath. Your price is blood. Tell me what I wish to know, and I will decide the value and payment due. 
That is not how this works, little one, she chimed. You are in my domain and will abide by my rules. Tongues, the hag's tongue circled Kozlan as she shifted nearer. Just a drop, and I will judge your value. Kozlan swatted the tongue as it dripped mucus near his face. If you do not find value in the magics radiating from my essence, then you will hold nothing for me. Sentra leaned her head to the side and pivoted around the cooking pit. We seem to be at an impasse. I struggle to remember when last someone spoke to me in such a tone. I find myself tempted to accept your terms on the grounds of your bravado. How about a little wager to decide how to proceed? Kozlot narrowed his eyes. What do you suggest? First, tell me your question. I seek the knowledge of true resurrection, of how to undo Elphame's work. Interesting, though not a question. Kazan grunted. Uh, how do I perform true resurrection? Or who can teach me the spell, if not you? Now, that is a question I have answers to, she cooed. Very well. The mortals of this realm come to me for questions answered, but none have, none have seen my true visage. If you can witness me without fleeing, I will answer your question without a drop spilt. I will even answer a question for each of both of your familiars on the porch. Kozlan thought of the eldritch horrors he, can, he encountered across and between the realms. Undead, daemon, beings that literally survived on misery and pain. How terrible could a swamp hag living in a dingy hut look? First, what do you consider me fleeing? He asked. You cannot take a single step from me. And if I do? Ah, if you flee, I take my payments with no questions answered. Kozlan smirked, imagining her chasing him through the swamp to extract his blood with that grotesque tentacle. Very well. Show yourself, hag. Her tongue slid back into the cloak. We have struck an agreement, she giggled. Madame Centra's hang hand, clutching the mossy cloak, let go to fully reveal her center line. She wore a moss skirt, clattering with small skulls, head to, held together with twine, strung through the eye sockets and holes bored through the crowns of temples. She slipped the cloak free of her shoulders, revealing pendulous breasts and a torso of rotted flesh. Muscle and sinew were visible where the skin was torn away. In her center, the gaps between her ribs hinted of a scabbed and oily heart that throbbed and shuddered. Look at me, Kozlant, she sighed, and he raised his gaze. Her mouth opened wide, unnaturally wide, as large as her head, with rows of teeth as long as Kozlant's fingers. Her tongue snaked out, thick with strings of oily mucus. The archmage felt the surge of power as it radiated up from her ruined body and collected to the bones atop her head, filling it with a brilliant white light. She is hideous, Kazan thought as he focused on taking short, shallow breaths, lest her stench of death overpowered him. He recognized an aura, a working of powerful magic, pushing at him, drawing up a primal fear, and he touched his amulet, pulling from its store of purified mana to mitigate the effect. He noticed tiny worms crawling through the skulls around her bony hips and the beads of necklaces lying across her desiccated chest. One dangled a small ruby chip over her exposed heart. Is that mana crystal? He asked, glad to have a familiar sight to distract him. Do I not disgust you? She asked, sounding almost sad. Uh, you do. Do I not frighten you? No, though I understand why you frightened others. You are different with foreign laws of nature and others find that terrifying. Your fangs and tongue might do some damage, but otherwise your body looks frail and vulnerable. I sense some tenuous magic keeping you alive, similar to an archmage, but no, you do not frighten me. Do you not think me a vile force of evil? Kazlan shook his head. Oh, 
You live in a swamp and consume blood for power. That makes you no more evil than a mosquito. Kazan snaps the cloak. Or, I'm sorry, Madame Sentra snapped the cloak around her frame and moved to a step away from Kazan. She raised her hood again to shroud her face. What's that mana crystal on your necklace? He repeated. She held out the gem on a silver chain with her long fingers. You know of this? In response, Kozlan took the pouch from his belt and dumped a few crystals into his palm. Solidified lay energy. I have only found it in my home realm. It grows along ley lines, which I have yet to detect here in Urbis. I was given this as payments by another decades ago, another that would not give her blood. What did this person look like? A woman, shorter and darker skin than you, with long... Ah, Alashia, Kazan grumbled. You know of her. She called herself the Chronicler. She and I have a complicated history. What did she ask of you? Sentra slowly shook her head. That is not how my services work, little one. Fine, then, Kazan put away all but one gem and offered it to the hag. Take this as payments, then give me your answers. Sentra, Sentra shied from his offer. You did not plead for me. You have paid for your questions with foolish bravery. Kazan tucked away the mana crystal. Madame Sentra shifted away and seemed to shrink as she pulled her mossy cloak tight. True resurrection. To restore one's life, even after the body has long ago passed beyond the point of sustaining itself. That is not a magic to be performed lately. I do not ask for a lecture on the morals of the results I wish I, of what I ask, only of the knowledge of how it is done. Very well. The magic requires only two components. Her hand, not holding the cloak closed, poked from the folds and raised two fingers with chipped and broken nails. The first is, is some physical memory of the person. A, fi- a tooth, a strand of hair, a drop of blood. Kazan frowned. Levin died over seven centuries ago. The magic that killed him reduced him to a stain in the grass. Uh, and the other component? A living person bearing memories of the departed. Their soul, their life force is gone, passed to the next realm. Using the memories, one may recreate the mind, if not the soul. The Archmage considered that. You say recreated. So this is so the result is a sort of living bone? A reconstruction, but not the actual person? Is there a difference? Kazan shrugged. Madame Sentra continued. The person holding memories of the deceased concentrates to draw mana through them and into the mortal remains. There is little more than that. You seem like a, a capable mage. You seem capable of working out the details. Is that really a true resurrection? The result is a person looking like and thinking they are the deceased, but only as similar as they are remembered to be. As I say, the soul is gone, converted into mana in the next realm along the trees. Is there nothing else? A warning. Time your spell to use mana as it pushes from the world tree. If you use mana from the far lands, the result may be very different. Certainly not what you intend. Nice. That's a good (laughs) way to end this series. (laughs) I love the strong imagery you have in that scene. There's no guessing what this woman looks like. (laughs) You're really very skilled at that. She's gross. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) She's gross. Yeah. So relatively, relatively gross. (laughs) So, so this is the backstory of one of your characters from the series. Do you envision writing another backstory for another character that is maybe knocking on your skull a little bit? I'm not sure. So the 
the next book that I am currently drafting is um, completely standalone from all of this. But the next one after that would actually be a continuation that would happen after the trilogy and involve uh, some some more minor characters and actually turning uh, Lone, the the protagonist of the trilogy, into the antagonist of the book, of this next book. Um, but I have not actually That'll thought too much about it. fun, turning that oh. inside out. Right? Well, yeah. the, 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 the whole point of that story would be that... Um, he that Lone has become the, the the caretaker of magic and making sure that magic isn't abused and the main character of the story essentially wants to abuse magic. So he sees it as I want to bring magic to the people and Lone sees it as no you're gonna ruin everything. So Got it. Um, be that'll fun. be fun. That'll yeah. be fun. So but, what yeah. is the project that you're working on right now? So it's uh I'm calling it Feybound. It's a story about a, a couple from like essentially maybe like Battle Creek, Michigan, modern day, uh, their dog gets conscripted into the Fey Army, and then they have to go get their dog back. So okay, it's, it's a bit of like a Wizard of Oz um, uh, or, or Alice in Wonderland, sort of that, that portal fantasy where they... Nice. Yeah. So when that's finished, come back and read it for me. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep nagging you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. This is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for um, embarking on this experiment with me and reading all four books from oh, your you series. I, I'm really excited to sit down. As I told you off air, I'm going to sit down this summer and read them all so I have no interruptions. All right. Thank you so much Wonderful. for your time, Jamie. You have a great night. No, oh, you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Indie Reads Aloud Radio. We hope you'll join us again next week for another story. If you're an indie author and you'd like to share your story with us, visit our website at dkpwriter.com to sign up and read aloud.